If uh, uh, you don't know me, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the elders here. I probably should have said that before. We're in the sort of uh, a few weeks into our Exodus series, and I'm doing the second half of Exodus 3. So if you have a Bible with you, or you have a phone that has a Bible app, you can swipe or turn there. It would be helpful for you to do that. Uh, we're going to be reading from about Exodus 3, about verse 7, right to the end of the chapter. But we'll do that a little bit later on. So as you're doing that, we're going to sort of maybe play a, a very, very short game. And I want you to finish the line. Okay, so I'm going to say the beginning of a line, and you are to shout out the end of the line. So the name's Bond. Wow, you can see who the competitive people are. There's no messing about there. There was no matching the, the sort of the cadence of the line. It's James Bond, straight in. I like it. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't, get the, you wouldn't be the next Bond. The name's Bond, James Bond. End of the film. It wouldn't be 163 minutes or whatever the new one is. Romeo, oh Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? In the garden, no. <laughs> yeah, very good. Deny thy father. Any more? Did anyone learn this for GCSE English when you were at school? It was boring. Deny thy father and refuse thy name. Goes on to say, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. I thought there might be someone who was like really sort of into their Shakespeare who would have done the, the whole speech, all sort of like 12 lines of it, but um, unfortunately not. Or fortunately not, maybe, I don't know. I wonder, okay, we move on to the next round. Do you know who this guy is? Any, any guesses? Unless you're really into a particular sport, you won't know who this guy is. Any guesses? No. He's, a, he's an NBA sports writer, and he is known as The Name. He, he writes for the LA Times, uh, and if you have a subscription to the LA Times, you can read an article that he wrote, which I read a number of years ago, where he describes an encounter with someone who came up to him and said, is it you? Are you The Name? And he sort of sighed and said, yeah, yeah, I am actually. It's like, this guy's name is Baxter Holmes. How great is that name, Baxter Holmes? W whilst we were um, deciding on names for our children, uh, I was sort of pushing quite hard for Baxter, um, and this was the only guy I could find who was called Baxter as a first name, and his name was Baxter Holmes. I was like, that is, a, that is an amazing name. Baxter McGovern would be an amazing name. That's like, that's like a film star from the 50s, like Blake Harrington and Baxter Holmes in whatever film. But my wife uh, is sort of uh, much more sensible than I am and sees uh, the sort of uh, the benefits to, uh, to other things. And so we settled on a sort of the compromise that Baxter would be a middle name. Um, but names are important. We, we found it actually quite difficult to name a son. Having had two daughters, it was very easy to name our daughters. Um, I think we could have probably named another 10 girls if we'd had. We're not planning to have that many children. Um, but 
it was it was quite difficult to name a boy. I found it quite a challenge because you sort of sometimes you sort of you give them a name and it's like that's that would be a really good strong name for when you're an adult. But actually, as a child, it seems slightly odd. That's much too big a name for this baby. So um, even to sort of not too long ago, um, we would have, he would have been more than six months old. Uh, I said to Megan, I'm not sure about Joseph, um, which. <laughs> We are settled on Joseph, don't worry. Um, it was just a momentary blip. But I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm still not 100%. Um, but I am 100% now. Um, but we found it difficult to name a boy because the names are important. I think sometimes it's, we go through phases. Sometimes people pick names based on how they sound. You know, it's a, it sounds cool or it's, it's, it sounds pretty. Um, and sometimes we choose names based on what they mean. They can have a significance to them. Because names often communicate, and particularly in the Bible, they communicate something about who we are or about who that person is. That's why we love nicknames and why children love name-calling. Because they want to ascribe something or to attach something to a person that might not be their actual name. I don't know if you ever had nicknames. I had quite a few um, but what your name, your nickname, often it says something about you, doesn't it? I played for a football team where I could only train for one of the two sessions a week. And so my nickname became part-time. Um, and that was it. Now, some people didn't even know my real name. They just knew me as part-time. Um, when I was growing up, uh, we had a friend who lived a few doors down the road. And none of us could pronounce his surname. So he became, became known as Chris DTR, Chris Down the Road. Um, and years later, I thought, I'd really like to get in touch with him because he was quite a good friend and I couldn't find him uh, on Facebook because his name on Facebook wasn't Chris DTR. Um, so that's someone who's lost to the, uh, you know, to the time. Uh, maybe I'll make, come across him in, an, uh, in another time or another place. But you can make a name for yourself, can't you? By the things that you do, you can get a reputation. So he's really getting a name for himself. Of course, she's getting a name for herself about being, you know, she's always on time or he's always late. He's really getting a name for himself. That's not about me, obviously. Um, <clears throat> this is very true in the Bible. Often people's names would be changed. When God wants to change something fundamental about who they are, their identity. But this morning, we're going to look at a section of Exodus where God reveals his name. God says, this is my name. We're going to sort of walk through the, the passage and I'm going to sort of just comment on a few of the verses and we're gonna, then we're going to look more closely at the name of God and what that says about who he is and the significance of that. And as we do that, I want to remind you of what Alex taught us last week. He did an excellent job of talking about God's transcendence and imminence that God is distinct and other than us. And yet he's also near and involved and close to his people. And it's important to try and keep that in mind. It's important to try and keep that in our minds as we look at this section of the Bible and maybe even think to yourself as we read, is, is this communicating that God is other than me or is this communicating that God is involved with his people? As you read the Bible for yourself, as I hope you do, on a daily basis, you, as you read the Bible, you look at it and you think, as I'm reading this is, this, is this telling me about how God is different from me? 
Or is this telling me about how God is involved and close to me? That's a good little lens to use. So we're going to turn to, if you're not, not there already, then it will come up on the screen for you. But we're going to turn to Exodus chapter 3. And I'm going to read from verse 7. I'm going to read from verse 7 right through to the end of the chapter. And then we'll go back and maybe comment on a few of those things uh, that I said I would draw out. Are you able, oh, George, are you able to sort of try and keep up? Yeah, thank you. Not that I'm going to read particularly quickly, but you know what I mean. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good land, a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the, the children out of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favour in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbour and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewellery and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. There's a lot in there. As I said, we're going to sort of cover a few bits and pieces. Um... And then we're going to sort of dial in on that section where God reveals his name and talk about the significance of that. So I just want to start by, if you look at sort of verses 7 to 12, I don't know if you can sort of flick around a little bit, George, try and make people not be sick, but um, motion sickness. But 
we look at verses 7 through 12, there's a, there's a kind of dialogue that goes on. And if you read this chapter in full, to be honest with you, Moses is quite annoying. Um, he's kind of sort of not really getting with the program, but uh, Marion's going to talk a little bit more about Moses next week uh, as we look at uh, sort of the beginning of chapter 4. But I just wanted to draw out this thing where if we see in verse 7, God says, I've seen what's happening. I, I've heard the cry of my people. I know what's going on. And then in verse 8, he says, I've, and I have come down. And then in verse 9, I've seen the oppression with which they're being oppressed. I will send you. God says, I've seen, I've heard, I know. I have come down. I have seen the oppression. I will send you. And Moses says, who am I? Who am I? It's not about who Moses is. It's about who God is. God has come down to do it. And God's response to Moses' question is, I will be with you. Marion's going to speak into that next week. But this morning, I want us to focus on who God is. Because that's an, the, the question of who am I can't be answered unless we really know God. You can't really answer that question, who am I, unless you know God. Tim Keller, in his uh, book on prayer, which is fantastic, I'd recommend it to you. George and I are reading through it at the moment together. Um, he says this, when we pray, he says, you are with another and he, God, is unique. God is the only person from whom you can hide nothing. Before him, you will unavoidably come to see yourself in a new, unique light. Prayer, spending time with God, therefore, leads to a self-knowledge that is impossible to achieve any other way. If you want to truly know yourself, you have to spend time with God and getting to know who God is. But we don't, we don't live in a time where people want to know who God is. We live in a time where people want to redefine who God is. They say, oh, I don't think God would do that. Or the Jesus I know wouldn't talk about things like that. Actually, we need to let God tell us who he is, as he does in this passage. In verses uh, 15 and 16, he says, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. The people that Moses is going to talk to would have known those stories. We've, a few times we've sort of referenced back to, it'd be helpful if you knew a bit of Genesis. Go and read some Genesis. Go and read these stories. Being the God of Abraham would carry meaning for them. It, rem it would remind them that, yeah, this is, this is the God who's faithful, who makes covenants and is faithful to them. All that time ago, it's the same God. That he's the God of Isaac. It would remind them that he's the God of the impossible miracle baby who brought joy. The God who brings joy through the miraculous. That he's the God of Jacob. That he's the God who, he's the God of the trickster when life isn't all plain sailing. He's the God of the man who wrestled with him. He's the God who remains faithful and gives new identity. Jacob becomes Israel. It's a reminder of these great stories in their history when he says, tell them that this is who I am. But he also says, say I'm the God of your fathers. I'm not just the God of your history, I know you as well. I know your family, I know you as individuals. 
He's remained faithful all that time and he knows them. Verses 18 and 19, he says, go and, initially he says, go and ask for a bank holiday. You know, you're sort of your slaves, but go and ask for a three-day weekend where you can go and come and worship me. Because he knows that asking for like a moderate, actually that's, that wouldn't be an unreasonable thing. Actually, yeah, you can go and worship your God. You can have your little, your little feast and go and worship God and then come back and you can be slaves again. But he knows that Pharaoh won't allow it. He knows that Pharaoh won't allow it. The refusal of this modest request would galvanize the Israelites. Their resolve would be strengthened and the need for God to demonstrate his power would be obvious. He can't even let, Pharaoh won't even let us go and worship God for a few days. He's never going to let us go. We need to be rescued. And then in verses 21 and 22, he says that they would leave the life of slavery with the wealth of their oppressors. Instead of leaving with nothing, instead of going from being slaves to now they're just wandering around in the desert with nothing, they were going to receive the plunder of the Egyptians. Plunder is a victory word, isn't it? You don't, you don't plunder your ally, you plunder someone who you've been victorious over. Gold, jewellery, clothing, God gives them what they will later need to worship him. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but spoilers, a bit later on, like when they get uh, to Mount Sinai, God says, I want you to make all of this stuff. I need you to make this and make this huge tent and you need to make this out of gold and this out of silver and this out of all these different things and this needs to be carved. And it's like, well, hang on. These are slaves who've now managed to escape and they're wandering around in the desert. Unless they've sort of got a very quick mining operation set up, they're not going to have any gold. Actually, God knows I'm going to, I'm going to ask them for these offerings that are going to be used to make the place where I will meet with them, the place where my presence will dwell amongst them. He's preparing them, he's giving them what they will later need to worship him. So just a few little things. If you went through, you could pick up some more stuff, but we don't have time to sort of really dial down into all of this, <coughs> uh, all of that there is in there. But I want us to really focus in on verses uh, 13 to 15, uh, which should be, I don't know if they're up there, but uh, what's in a name? What is in a name? And what's, what is the name of God? And why does it matter? Well, verses 13 to 15, I'm going to read them again. It says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. If you notice in verse 15, if you've got a Bible or if it's up there, um, yep, you'll see it. It's uh, where it says, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord. If you notice the word Lord there, it's written in all capitals. 
So when you see the word Lord, you may well know this in all capitals, that denotes that actually that's the name of God. For, for various reasons, they didn't used to write it down. Uh, they would write, uh, the, eventually they would just write the, the vowel, uh, not the vowels, the consonants. They would write Y-H-W-H, which was short for Yahweh, which then eventually became Jehovah through some sort of various uh, translation stuff, which you can look up. There's a really good uh, short video, about four minutes, um, by the Bible Project, where they talk about the, the sort of the way the name changed and sort of how uh, we got some of these words that we use. But God says, my name is the I am that I am. I am who I am. The translation, the word is actually, it should be, I be that I be. I be who I be, which doesn't sound quite so good. But what it's trying to communicate is, I am. I be. Who, 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 who shall I say sent me? I am that I am. I exist. I don't, I don't come from anywhere. I don't re rely on anyone else. I just am. I am the one who is and the one who will be. I am not dependent on anyone or anything. I simply am. He says to Moses, go and say, I am has sent you. He is, he is permanent. He is self-sufficient. He doesn't change. He doesn't get worn out. He doesn't need to go and have a rest. doesn't need to have a nap. He just is. He always is. He always will be. Nothing and no one else can make that claim. You can't make that claim because there was a time when you weren't. You can't make the claim to never get worn out, never get tired. Even if you are a very high capacity individual, you will get worn out and you will get tired. I know someone who's a very high capacity individual and once they said to me, I'm, I'm too tired for a meeting that was called... Um, Two, two, two. Um, and so I would always joke, I'd joke with them and go, oh, are you too, too, too tired? Um, because it was like the one time they were tired. Um, but God doesn't get worn out. He doesn't get tired. We can be at the end of ourselves. We need to consume food in order to sustain ourselves. We need to get enough sunlight or our mood changes. God simply is. Why is this significant for us? That God is. He is the I am. The significance is that the I am's promises cannot be broken. All of the things God says can be relied upon because of who he is. Because he is the only fixed reference point. His character is constant. And he, because he creates and sustains all things and is reliant on nothing, he never changes. 
in verse 17 of the passage we read, he says, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. The value of a promise is in the power of the speaker to deliver. When uh, Megan and I started dating, one of my sort of most romantic overtures towards her was I said, I will never make you a promise. I promise. No, I said, I, I won't ever say to you, I promise. Because I said, if I say I'll do something, like I'll do my best to do it, but I'm not going to say I promise because it, I probably will let you down with some things that I say I promise. So what I'll do is I'll just say, if I say I'm going to do it, I'll do my best to do it. But I'm not going to say, oh, I promise, because if I say I promise, it usually means I'm not sure that it's going to happen, but I'm saying that to add a little bit of weight to the, to the statement. I, you know, how she married me, I don't know. Um, I'm a strange guy. Um, but the promises of God, when God says something, he has the power to deliver. He can back it up. The reality was, I might say to Megan, I might have said to Megan, oh, I'll do this thing, and actually, it would come time to do it, and I'd get tired. I'd be tired, and I'd, oh, she won't mind if I don't do it. Or I'd say, oh, you know, let's, get, let's go and do this, and actually, circumstances change, and, we, and I can't deliver. I'll, get, uh, I'll sort this out. And actually, circumstances change, and I can't deliver. God can always deliver, because he's the I am. His circumstances don't change. He's not going to, oh, you know, I was going to get you out of Egypt, but to be honest with you, I'm pretty tired from sustaining the universe. So if you could wait another couple of hundred years, is that all right? Yeah. It's not like that. Amen. The promise of God to deliver has value because of the character and power of the promiser. The promises of God in your life have power and are reliable because of the character and the power of the, of the promiser, the one who is the I am. There's a, there's a problem. The problem is that there's a war of I ams in your life. In my life, there is a war of I ams. The I am of self is at war with the I am of God. God is the I am, but we like to be the I am. We go against what God desires or the pattern of life that he's laid out. And when we do that, we're saying, I am the authority in my life. I know that you've asked me to do this, God, but I'm going to do this instead because I think I know best. I am the one who knows best. This never works out well. When we don't base our identity on the I am of God, we base it in other things. We say, I am, maybe I am in control. That's who I am. I'm in control. I, I've always got things locked down. Well, what that ends up doing is producing anxious or angry people. Because the reality is, you are not always going to be in control. However organized you are, however fantastic you are at sort of maneuvering people and things, you will not always be in control. 
And when that happens, you'll either be anxious because it's, I'm not in control, I don't know what's gonna happen, or you'll be angry. I'm, why are they not doing what I want? Why has it not happened the way that I thought it was gonna happen? When we base ourselves say, I am in control, we'll end up anxious or angry. When we think I am what I do, which is a big thing for us, we say, ah, oh, what I do is, is who I am. Eventually that will be taken away. You'll retire. When we say I am what I own, we become enslaved to having more, to eventually potentially being in debt because I need to, I need to, I need to keep up with them. I need to have what they have. I am whatever can be snatched away. Whether it's, uh, you know, I'm a dad, that's who I am. I'm a, I'm a brother, I'm a, I'm a son, I'm, I'm this, I'm that. They can all be snatched away. There's only one thing that can't be snatched away. Tim Chester uh, does a, a wonderful analogy, which is, it's sort of an, an updated version, but he talks about uh, Kate Middleton uh, when she was 15 going to the palace. And she knocks on the door. She says, oh, hi, I'm, I'm Kate Middleton. I'd like to come in and you know, see the queen and I'd like to sort of have a little look around the palace. Uh, is that all right? You know, the sort of, the guards are there. Who are you? No, go away. Of course you can't come in. Fast forward to modern day. Kate Middleton walks up to the palace. It's, it's me, Kate, can I come in? You know, I'm... I'm married to him, can I come in? And she's ushered in. Of course, yes, yes, your Royal Highness, or whatever title she has. I'm not good with the titles of the royals. Whatever title she has, come in. You go wherever you want, do whatever you want to do. Speak to whoever you want to speak. The status she has has changed because of her relationship to her husband, to William. Now, obviously the analogy breaks down for us in that they could separate and her status would change again. But our status changes when we encounter Jesus. We're able to say, I'm with him. And our status has changed. Now you might think, hang on, where did, how did Jesus just sort of slide into the, the sermon there? We're talking about Exodus 3. Well, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to John 8. And Jesus is leading possibly the most, one of the most confrontational Bible studies uh, that you could come across. Um, we're looking at John 8, uh, chapter, uh, John uh, 8, verse 48. So this is uh, the people that are attending, some of the people that are attending Jesus' Bible study, they say this to him, uh, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I mean, that's not, a, you know, that's a, a sort of an awkward question to field if you're, you know, trying to help some people Learn about the Bible. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honour my father and you dishonour me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. 
Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. This is an awkward Bible study. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I'm not going to sort of test this theory, but I wonder what I'd have to say as I was preaching for you to all pick up the chairs and throw them at me. You know, what sort of level of sort of saying the wrong thing would I have to say for you to go, he needs to die? Jesus is talking to them and this is their response. What he's just said, let's get him. Let's, we, we need to kill him for that. Why? Because Jesus was claiming to be God. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. We did a series a little while ago on the, the I am statements in John or some of them. Jesus is saying, I am. He's equating himself with that name that is the name of God throughout all generations. The Pharisees and those listening to Jesus are angry with him because he, they're saying he's committed a blasphemy by claiming to be God when he says that before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, not before Abraham was, I was even before him and I'm really old and you just don't realise it, but before Abraham was, I am. Why is this important? At the beginning, I prayed uh, for us and I actually prayed some verses from Ephesians 1. I'm just going to read a few of those. I prayed that the Lord God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having our, the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Those first few verses, we need a revelation in the knowledge of him to know the hope that he has called us to, to know the immeasurable power of his greatness, greatness of his power, so that we can know the hope and have security in the hope that comes from that power demonstrated through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension and rule. I want to encourage you to 
Seek this for yourself. This is that, those verses are Paul praying for a church. He says, this is what I pray for you, that you would have a revelation of this knowledge, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. I pray a very similar prayer for the church. I regularly try and pray for everyone in the church. This Lord, this is why I want to pray for us. I want to pray for the Marion. I want to pray for Brian. I want to pray for Matt. I want to pray for Erica. I, want, I try and pray for everyone and say, this is what I want for us. A deeper understanding, a, a more rich understanding to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us and the hope that comes. See, the hope we have in Jesus is not just in his life. So the, the back end of those verses, it talks about, this is what God did. He, he raised Jesus from the dead. And then he, he's, he's, been a, he's sat down at the right hand. He's ascended on high and he's, everything is being put under his feet. Our, the hope we have is not just in Jesus' life. It's not just that Jesus was a great example to follow. What a wonderful man. He was, he was so kind and he said some really lovely things. And wouldn't it be great if everyone was a bit more like Jesus? That's not what it's about. Yes, that's, those things are true. But the hope that we have is not just from Jesus' life. It's not just an example to follow. It's not just from his death. It's not that it's like, okay, well, you know, Jesus did a really good job and then he died and because he died and he was, he was perfect, well, that wipes the slate, the slate clean for us and now if I'm really good and I work really hard, then maybe I can sort of eke my way in. It's not about that. That's not the hope we have. It's not just the fact that he rose from the dead. He said, oh, you know, there's hope for a, for a new life, a better life. Jesus is ascended and ruling. There's a promise of victory. Jesus is winning. Everything, I think the tension that Brian brought out earlier is, is so helpful. Everything is being brought under Jesus' rule and authority. The, the fact that there's 220,000 Brazilian Christians praying and that we could look and go, oh, this, this doesn't seem like it's happening here. Actually, Jesus is winning. It may not look like it, but everything is being brought under his rule and authority. The hope we have is in the combination of those things. That Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension and rule are all confirmation that he is God that he is the one by whom we can be saved. The I am name of God that is claimed by Jesus gives us confidence in the power and permanence of his promises. I want to ask you, what would it mean for you to live with that confidence? I know it. Not just, oh, yeah, I understand, but I know I've got hope. I know the hope I have is solid. How would you live differently if you were completely confident in the I am? Would you be less anxious knowing that this is what God has said, this is what God has said to me, 
This is what he said to his people. I can trust him. I can rely on him. Because of who he is, I can be confident. Sometimes we start the meeting and we say, you know, it doesn't matter how you came. You know, if you're sort of feeling a bit, a bit down, you know, that's okay. Because God is who he is. God's the same. It's helpful for us to focus on God. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to draw ourselves away from, I'm looking at the circumstances of my life thinking, how am I going to sort this mess out? To, wow, how is, how is he going to sort this mess out? This is going to be great to see. This is going to be fantastic to watch how God works in my life. He's got so much room to manoeuvre. How would our lives be different? Let me pray for us and then we'll finish. Father, I thank you that you are. You be because you be. You just exist. You're the source of creation, that nothing is made without you. That you are completely self-sufficient. You're content in yourself. But I pray we would have a revelation of you. That the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. That as we read your word this week, as we pray this week, we would be our concept of you would be undone and remade bigger. That would be as though a puzzle was taken apart and actually there was a whole new section of puzzle to put in the middle and then add round the edges. That we would have a greater understanding, a deeper depth to our relationship with you. I ask that we would have a confidence in the hope that we have that it would be a confidence that enables us to speak out and say, if you're struggling, I know I've got hope that I can share with you. I know a God who can change that circumstance. Lord Jesus, I pray you would be with us <coughs> by your Holy Spirit as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <laughs>